Welcome to the Cumberland River Compact's River Talks podcast. In each episode of River Talks, we explore a new topic related to the health, enjoyment, and protection of the Cumberland River Basin's water, people, and special places. We sit down with experts, artists, researchers, professionals, and more to share their knowledge and experiences. I'm Katherine Price, your River Talks host. Be sure to subscribe to River Talks to be notified of every new episode. And if you have a moment, please rate and review our podcast. Spring has sprung, and for many people, it's time to refresh their gardens. The green spaces near our homes, whether they are simply raised beds or fully landscaped yards, can provide a place of joy and wonder right out our own back doors. But these spaces can also help support our waterways and nature. In today's episode, we hear from three experts on best practices and tips for nature-friendly spring gardening. First up, we'll hear from Tyler Blankenship with Bates Nursery. Bates Nursery is a third-generation business in Nashville, Tennessee, committed to helping customers with all their gardening needs. Tyler and I sat down to talk about native plants and general gardening tips. We're thinking about spring gardening, getting ready for the spring. It can be kind of overwhelming to figure out what to plant. So what are some tips that you guys have for what people should look for when deciding if a plant is right for their garden? Well, the big considerations are sunlight, space, uh, soil, and climate. Sunlight is very important because some plants only take a certain amount of sun. Uh, Others, the more the merrier. So that is one thing to consider as you are walking around your home or your garden space and, you know, take a second to look at the trees that are around. Uh, Is your home casting shade? Like, are you planning on the north side of your home where the sun hardly shines? These are things that are going to extend your plant's life. Consider spacing. When you look at plants at the nursery, take a look at the tag you'll see an approximate size of what the plant is fully supposed to grow out to. Uh, Then apply that practice when you are considering how many you want to plant and how close you want them spaced together. Like if you're planting a hedge, you want to go outside of those spacing dimensions. If if you want to plant a kind of a sporadic little row of things, you want to make sure that there's enough room for your little guys to be tucked in there. Soil is a huge one uh, around your home and most uh, conventionally constructed homes have heavily compacted soil. Also, the topsoil is usually scraped up and sold off when the site is prepared. So you're looking at a nutrient depleted environment uh, that you're going to be planting into. So consider uh, soils that are rich in nutrients, uh, as well as adding mulches that help retain moisture in the soil. Pay attention to the requirements on the tags for your plants to make sure that they like either more of a moist place or a dry place. Because even with poor soil, there are areas where water could pool or you know, if it's in the lower slope of your property, There might be more wetness there, but then you plant a few feet up and there's a hump and it's drier and the same plant might do so well there. So uh, that is super huge as well. And the climate, um, Nashville and this basin area here is zone 7A. 
it's kind of on the edge of what some of the warmer plants prefer. And we have some plants that we sell at the nursery that we kind of consider to be on this margin or we consider to be annual here where a few hours south, it would probably make it as a perennial. So uh, make sure that on the labels and when you look up plants that zone seven is at least included in it. You know, it could be from zone five to nine or from zone seven to 10. Just make sure that, that it is well within that range because that's going to ensure the most vitality as well. Great, lots of good tips to look at there. And another aspect of thinking about picking plants and that you know we talk about a lot and you're hearing more about is choosing native plants, plants that are native to Nashville and the Tennessee area. Why is it important to select native plants when you can? Well, I think, especially now with when the growth is of Nashville is so rapid and expansive and you're looking at neighborhoods like the nations for instance uh, tree canopy is disappearing at a very rapid rate then you need to consider that these uh, native species that we have here are being pushed out of these even these already kind of sculpted neighborhoods that we've landscaped and then they've grown in. Uh, we need to provide food and shelter for these species because we live basically in the middle of a temperate rainforest here in the south. Uh, we have rainy seasons, uh, there's insects and animals all around us, and we need to do our due diligence, I think, to, you know, feed them a little and also keep up the uh, looks of our property. I feel like dual function is is huge nowadays maybe even triple or quadruple function um bates nursery part of like our webinar series that we're doing the bates nursery botanical boot camp is uh highlighting native species biodiversity and a, a host of other topics that you know encourage pollinators we have one on companion planting so these are topics that are things that we should be talking about and, uh, and applying in all aspects of our gardening habits. So if you head to our website and click on the blogs button up at the top and go down to the Botanical Bootcamp webinar archive, there is a tag on the side that says pollinators and native species. And if you click on that, it takes you into this lovely block of webinars that really focus in on native species, biodiversity, and, and attracting pollinators. Uh, on the Planting for Biodiversity webinar blog entry, there are additional resource links to books, uh, websites, as well as plants that are mentioned in the webinar, which include really wonderful and beneficial things for birds like black walnut, river birch, red maple, uh, and we go by layer too. We go from larger to smaller to shrub and then even flowers. So, you know, holly is a good one. Uh, elderberry, uh, dogwood, uh, pawpaw, serviceberry. So all these plants are going to be really great. And I encourage you to check that webinar out. And I think the cool thing about natives too is that they, like you said, they have so many benefits and they also are sort of like nature's already given them that 
stamp of approval, I think that that was included in one of your posts where it was like, it's already been growing here, it's meant to grow here. So it's going to probably be a little bit easier to maintain, especially if you're maybe starting out with gardening. Yes, exactly. As well as the biodiversity aspect, they're easier to grow, usually not very invasive, although the passion flower is kind of on the borderline if you've ever worked with that one. Euonymus americanus is the American strawberry bush. It's so beautiful. It uh, has those bright green oval leaves, but then bright red fruit appear uh, and reveal orange seeds. And it, that to me is spectacular in its own right and would be a highlight in my garden. Yeah, I think people tend to look at you know, plants that are non-native thinking that's where they're going to get those beautiful colors and those really interesting patterns. But there are so many native plants, especially in Tennessee, I think that are absolutely stunning when you see those flowers or the berries that they have. Yes. And yeah, you have to consider too, we have a lot of native berry plants that are also edible and not just for birds, but for humans. Uh, you could potentially grow your own pie garden if you wanted to so that sounds tasty I like that idea <laughs> yeah me too so when thinking about a garden I think sometimes either if you're you know changing your garden or starting it can be sort of overwhelming to look at a blank slate and sort of realize all the potential but all the things that you want to do how what recommendations do you have for homeowners looking to start small with either a new garden or updating their garden? So I would actually just start outside your own front door. Um, you know, walk out and see the potential. Do you envision a pathway? What would you want growing along that pathway? Do you have existing areas that could be improved uh, on, like along your driveway? Or is there a, a culvert or a drainage area that could use some attention? Uh, are there any erosion issues? Make a list, list things out. Uh, I would also recommend a visit to a local nursery. Uh, doesn't have to be Bates, although we do have a huge selection. And take a look at specimens at different sizes and, and make a list. You know, sometimes you just have to bite it off incrementally. And it also might be better for the wallet as well. If you're somebody who's just bought one of the new homes and are looking at the plants that were put in with the construction of the home, you probably might find them to be lacking or kind of basic. And that's, that's completely fine. Uh, but there's a lot of room for improvement and also in a small space. Now we have a webinar that we did on small space shrubs as well as foundation plants, uh, which both of those are basically like selecting like dwarf varieties of some certain shrubs or plants to fit in a tighter space so they grow together nicely or uh, selecting slender or plants that don't root out very gnarly uh, for the for planting next to your foundation of your house. And with that looking at a garden, you know, you talked about at the beginning that you need to consider sunlight and soil and all of these other things in addition to what plants you want to pick there. How can people also sort of look at the whole garden approach and thinking about planting at their garden and consider 
you know, what they might need to do their, to their soils, um, how they might need to amend them, you know, if they need to add fertilizer, you know, how to understand what to do there and also how to do that in a sustainable way. Yeah, so there's, there's a lot of different facets that uh, need to be considered when we approach things holistically. Uh, we need to look at not only what we want to plant and function of plants, but also how much of our energy is going into um, like either maintaining it or our utilization of it. So think about when you step out into your backyard and you have an herb garden, you probably don't want that herb garden to be all the way in the back of your yard. But let's say you're trying to raise bees <laughs> and you would probably want the swarm of bees to be all the way as far as away from your property as possible. So I think that the distance and the amount of input, energy input that we put into it is one huge initial consideration. Uh, the next would be, you know, plants that can, plants or structures, I should say, that can serve uh, multiple purposes. So trellises that you can grow a like cross vine that's a native up onto and it serves as shade but then the flowers also serve as a food source for pollinators uh, but then it's also visual interest for your garden because of the beautiful blooms that it offers the same goes with muscadine which is kind of like a local grape uh, it works well as a trellis or a screen uh, as a food source for birds so we need to think about multiple functions and pest deterrence as well like planting nasturtium next to your squash in your garden will help deter squash bugs uh, also you know certain plants attract aphids as well and when those aphids gather on the plant that attracts ladybugs to kill the aphids so when you think about this you're thinking oh your plants kind of have your back too so a consideration for soil is earth mix garden products it's a, a brand that bates nursery carries and it shares the same footprint here at our property in nashville tennessee uh, we source sustainably and locally when we can uh, all of the ingredients that go into the soil we we try and source them sustainably which means they're not going to deplete anything uh, the industry, like our mushroom compost, we source from a mushroom grower that is in East Tennessee. Uh, and so that detritus from their process basically just gets broken down and then turned into a soil product that people can add into their garden beds as compost. So we, we try and think holistically and close the loop, you know, between these these processes that, where we could capture nutrients off of another process and the, the entire time keeping it as organic as possible. In terms of dealing with pests and disease in your garden, you should probably approach it with uh, a layered approach using organic methods when necessary, when you've already planted plants that kind of get you uh, the kind of pest deterrence or wildlife attractants you want. 
And then finally, chemical solutions only when, when critically necessary. Because we do feel that chemicals have their place and their function, but we don't feel like they should be used wholesale because they are supremely effective. You know, neem oil uh, can repel a huge amount of pests when you don't have to apply something like DEET, for instance. All of that said, identify areas where two or three or four things can be fixed with one thing as much as possible. And then also consider your overall happiness or your or how, how your garden makes you feel whenever you do a thing or, or make an addition. Maybe you do it incrementally. Now, I like that idea to look towards what nature already does well with pest repellent or with planting things next to each other to benefit what you're looking for. There are ways that nature has already solved some of those problems. And so using natives, looking at sort of those natural um, companion plants is a great way to solve some of the problems that you might feel like you are, are hard to solve initially. So I love that approach. Yeah, like planting garlic underneath your peach tree to repel the green peach aphid. There you go. So you've talked about the products that Bates Nursery has to get started in a home garden. How else can Bates Nursery help people get started or expanding their gardens? Well, first and foremost, our people can help you. I am privileged to work with some of the most knowledgeable and jovial people who have really not hesitated to answer any question that I've thrown at them. I started at the nursery uh, almost a year ago, and since then I've been voraciously swallowing up any kind of plant knowledge I can see. Any plant that comes off the truck, I'm like, what is this? What does it do? Like, when does it bloom? Is it in season yet? Will it be? And, and, and everybody is happy to talk plants, and I think that that is huge. Uh, I came from more of a vegetable gardening background beforehand and had four or five years experience with that. But since being here, my just general knowledge just by coming here every day has been expanded greatly. So that being said, we also cater to the beginning gardener as well as the experienced and commercial landscaper. We offer uh, four packs in, our, in some of our vegetables and annuals that essentially allow you to plant as many as you need. And if some don't do well, that's fine. Uh, you know, they're kind of failure proof as they're only like a buck 99 per pack. Uh, we move up to four inch pots of most other specimens and then even further up to gallon and then multi-gallon sizes. So I think it's great to, when you're talking about selecting the right price point that you need, for your, however your life is versus the size plant you need, space requirements, things like that, we offer the most, the, the most amount of options for you to be able to select. Now, for some people, that can be overwhelming. And I'm going to go, again, refer back to our people, which can kind of help you narrow down what you need. Uh, and then uh, soil and amendments and things like that, we have plenty of an earth mix has a huge line of products as well that we carry in bulk sizes exclusively here in Nashville 
And then at other nurseries in the Middle Tennessee area, they also carry Earth Mix bag products. Great. And I love the way that you've talked about it a few times, just the happiness that your garden can bring and that joy yes. in learning about it. And I think that that is so important because it can feel like it can feel overwhelming, I think, for some people to be thinking about, okay, the sunlight, the soil, the plant type, the native plant, what I want it to serve as, but looking at it as an opportunity to have fun and find what makes you happy and learn from people like at Bates Nursery that feel that same joy and learning about plants as you do. I think that's awesome. So I'm glad that that's part of the way that you all approach gardening. Yeah, so if you uh, find that some aspects of your landscape or your garden space are inefficient or they just bother you when you look at them, just tear it out. Plants are meant to be cut back. They're meant to be, you know, handled and you can, you have the power to create the kind of environment or landscape or veggie garden or whatever that you want in your mind's eye. And I believe in you for to do that. <laughs> That's great advice and very inspirational for our ending here. I feel like here in Nashville between the Cumberland River Compact and these other organizations, we are really making this really cool web of like sustainability and kind of forward-minded thinking when it comes to our landscapes and our gardens. Also, I did mention that we've been doing our Bates Botanical Bootcamp webinars. I just wanted to make sure that uh, people know that you can not only register for those, but you can sign up for our newsletter where we send out a monthly recap of webinars as well as do one from the archives that you may not have seen. And we do our best to keep people informed at Bates Nursery too on our social media channels. Uh, David also has a show that's called The At Home Show with Josh Carey and David Bates that airs every morning at 8 a.m. Central Time. And they just basically talk about that it's a, it's a call-in show where they answer your questions and it's streamed live here from the nursery. And uh, David also just kind of goes over what's going on at the nursery and our hours and what you can expect for the day. Great, we'll make sure that all of that is included for people to learn more and, and get started and hear from some of these awesome experts in the Nashville community. Well, thank you so much for joining me, Tyler. I really appreciated learning about plants and baits and all the great stuff that you all are doing. Thanks, and I really have enjoyed the opportunity. Support the Cumberland River Compact through our 1% for Water program. 1% for Water is a corporate commitment to support clean and abundant water for all. Our partners donate 1% of their profits to support our efforts to keep our water healthy. Learn more at cumberlandrivercompact.org. A healthy garden needs healthy soils. And Dr. Robert Florence is just the person to help us untangle the mysteries of our soil. Dr. Florence is the lab director at the University of Tennessee Extension Soil, Plant, and Pest Center. He's a soil scientist by training and joined me to share the dirt on soil health. So let's start with the basics. Why is soil health important for backyard gardens? 
So soil health is important for backyard gardens for many reasons. So it's first to look at what soil health is and kind of cover that ground a little bit. So soil health covers the physical component of the soil, the chemical component of the soil, and the biological components of the soil. And these all interact with each other. But in general, the physical aspects focus on things like soil texture, whether it's sand, silt, clay components, micropores, macropores. Um, and so those are all important because they help with water infiltration, like the ability of water, instead of it just running off your lawn or garden into the, the stormwater to go into your soil, or you can have it for your plants to use it. They also affect water retention, right? A loamy soil will hold on to more water. You'll have more water holding capacity than uh, to a deep sand. And these also will change uh, by horizon, right? So as your soil formed in place, or if a soil was deposited where you live, um, you know, the physical aspects will change by depth, like your texture may change by depth, you may have more clay deeper down you go. So, and that those will also affect like your water holding capacity, or maybe you, you dig deeper down and you see that, oh, I got a, a hard clay pan, and maybe you want to break it up or try to loosen it up a little bit so you can actually have water go deeper down and not just have a, a shallow layer of water. The chemical aspects are soil pH, nutrient concentrations, maybe in an urban environment, uh, metals. Uh, the, the CEC, which it just stands for cation exchange capacity, and it's the ability of a soil to hold on to positively charged nutrients. So these are nutrients like calcium, potassium, magnesium, and then soluble salts, which uh, not a lot of homeowners run into the trouble with soluble salts. A lot of times it's like if uh, you put salt on your driveway or sidewalk for the for the winter time and all of a sudden you see that your grass is dying on the edge of the sidewalk or maybe some shrubs by that sidewalk are now dying you can second see is it, did the soluble salts kill it the chemical aspects are important just to make sure your plants have either enough of the nutrient that they need or not too much of a, a, a toxic nutrient and then the soil pH is very important because it's a main driver for nutrient availability for many elements uh, so just to make sure your pH is correct the answer for what is the correct pH basically depends on your plant, right? Some plants want a very low pH. Maybe you're doing blueberries or uh, Irish potatoes. Um, they want a lower pH or maybe some acid-loving shrubs. Um, but if you're just doing like, you know, a, a garden with tomatoes or corn and things, maybe a pH of 6.1 will be fine. Or maybe you're doing like sweet clover or alfalfa and you want a pH of 6.6, .6, you would want a higher pH. So uh, your pH is very dependent upon, uh, or I guess the right pH is dependent upon the crop you're going to, and keeping that in mind as you, as you look at your soil test or as you wonder about what plants you should plant there or how to change your soil. And then the biological components are kind of like, uh, you know, the, it has the soil acts as a house for microbes, fungi, earthworms, nematodes, small insects, small animals, you know, and whether you, you like those or not, right, some of those can be plant pathogens, some of those can make holes in your yard and you don't, you don't like them. So maybe you're trying to get, get rid of them. So it's kind of a, an ecological balance between uh, you and the biological components of the soil and, and how much you're willing to, to take and, and give. Ways to, to help the biological components are to return organic matter to the soil, whether it's yard clippings or compost. You know, these things will help feed the microbes. As the microbes have food, they'll mineralize organic matter and release nutrients back into the soil. And also the organic matter will help with the nutrient and, and water retention. So, so on a weight-to-weight -weight basis, organic matter has a lot more of the ability to hold on to cation exchange or to have a cation exchange capacity. So it can really hold on to positively charged nutrients um, much more than just a mineral soil. 
and also the organic matter will help with water retention. Uh, so if you have a, you're going through a drier period, having that extra organic matter will help hold on the water and maybe get you through that, that drought a little bit longer than, than without it. The organic matter can also help loosen a soil up. So if you're trying to get uh, more water to infiltrate into your soil and not just run off in the storm water, it'll help loosen the soil up. And also by loosening the soil up, it'll help oxygen get into the soil so plant roots can use it. So roots need oxygen to, to do their cellular respiration. So a lot of times people forget plants need oxygen as well. And that's a lot of times where you run into trouble with soil compaction is uh, not only is it a physical barrier for roots to get through the soil, but it also is a, a barrier for oxygen to diffuse in and out of the soil. And so the roots are, are starving for oxygen as well. So having an organic matter loosening the soil up will get water into the soil, but also oxygen as well. Soil health, the way you describe it is a lot more, there's a lot more technicality to that with the physical and the chemical and the biological. And you mentioned, you know, simply adding organic to the soil helps in all of those areas. Are there other things that people can be doing in their own backyards to help promote soil health? Yeah. So, you know, kind of returning the organic matter to the yard, it'll help the, the physical chemical properties feed the microbes. Uh, when you do have organic matter or clippings, you know, like when you cut your grass or if you uh, cut your shrubs or, or, you know, any kind of thing else, keep it off the, uh, off your driveway, off the street. So if it does get on the street, kind of rake it up or blow it back into your yard so it doesn't go down into the stream. Also keep fertilizer off the street and fertilizer off your driveway and sidewalk. Make sure it stays on the on the grass that it should be. And then um, one of the biological components is, is plants itself, right? So keeping the soil covered is, is a huge component of, of soil health because uh, soil erosion is, is bad. One, because you're losing soil uh, but also that uh, if that sediment makes it all the way to a stream, it can cause turbidity in that stream and can impair just that stream quality. So it'll affect many more things. So by keeping your soil in place, it, it helps you. And it also helps keep keep fish and, and other freshwater an animals happy. Absolutely. Uh, we love that part of it. <laughs> yeah. And so it can be as simple as like, you know, keeping a nice thick layer of mulch in your raised beds um, for your yard. It can be um, making sure that if you do have patches where it's just exposed, maybe to do some patch control with you know, annual ryegrass or something that you may you may kill off later to put it, what you want in there, but just keeping it uh, covered or even just you know letting weeds take over that patch for a while until you can get back in, in control of it. But you know sometimes it's just better to have weeds over a soil than to have bare soil and have it wash away. That would one could argue having weeds would be better in that case. And then also like in a garden scenario, you can do cover crops, right? So if you have a garden and you don't want to, uh, you can mulch it or put mulch on top of it to kind of keep it covered. Um, but you could also do any kind of fall cover crop uh, just to have something in place there. So when it does rain a lot and water's rushing over it, it kind of slows it down or even stops that sediment from, from going further into, into a stormwater system. And then further on to a, a stream or lake. And another way to help promote healthy soils is if you are going to you know, apply herbicides or pesticides to control insects or weeds in your yard or garden, um, is to make sure that you, one, buy the right herbicide or pesticide for that particular weed or, or pest, and that you apply it at the right time, right? That, you know, don't, don't just buy a general uh, herbicide and then go applying it 
you know, to a weed you don't even know exactly it's the right weed uh, or applying it to an insect and you may not have the right insect ID on it. All right, so make sure that if you are going to apply herbicides or pesticides, um, that you apply, you buy the right product for the right pest and you apply at the right time and also apply according to the label, right? Because with herbicides and pesticides, the, the label is the law. And if you um, ever have questions about uh, plant pest or insects, like that's something we can do at the lab. So we actually have a, a plant diagnostics lab here. And you can actually submit um, uh, plant disease samples or insect samples. And yeah, there's so many connections between soil and, and water and helping to protect the waterways. So, you know, we think about it sometimes with large scale agricultural land and, and that sediment being added to our waterways, but our own yards, our own lawns can also contribute to that problem. And so I know at the soil lab, you all do soil testing. So could you describe the process of soil testing and why should people look to getting their soil tested? Yeah, so the process starts with with the homeowner or the farmer, and it starts with taking the soil sample. And so the idea is that you would go out to your, we'll use a, a lawn, for example, you would go out to your lawn and you would take several samples throughout that lawn to get a good average of what's going on. So let's say you take six or seven or eight different subsamples, and then you would take them zero to six inches deep and you would mix them all together in a bucket, again, to get an average of your lawn, because soils are not very homogenous. So you're gonna, you know, there's going to be a lot of plus or minus within a lawn, so you're just trying to get a good average of what what you're going to you're manage. Mix all those subsamples up well in a bucket, and then just send in you know one to two cups worth of soil uh, to the soil lab. Some county offices will accept soil samples, and then I think they charge like a you know a small fee to ship them on further to to the soil lab if you want to go that route as well. Once the samples get to the soil lab, so we'll take the soil, we'll, we'll put it in a big dryer and dry it. And then we'll grind the soil up so we get this nice fine powder uh, homogenous sample to, to do the testing on. The most common thing we do is the pH and nutrient testing. So we'll take the soil, we'll add water to the soil, a very clean water so we're not having like any interferences with the, uh, with the analysis. We'll add it to the soil and we'll stir it up, we'll let it set for 10-20 um, minutes. And then we actually have a nice fancy pH robot so the, the robot will, will lay all the soils out, and then the robot will come through, it'll stir the soil, it'll measure the pH. And then kind of talking about before where the different plants have different target pHs, if the pH we measure is so low, like if it's usually if it's less than 6.6, we'll do a, a lime test on it. Um, we'll take that soil sample with the water in it, and then we'll add a, a chemical that has a resistance to pH change. It's a called a buffer pH. So its pH starts off at 7.9, and the ability of that soil to lower that chemical's pH tells us how hard it's gonna be for that particular soil to change its own pH. And so from knowing the pH of the soil, the uh, pH target that your crop is at, or your particular plant is at, and then knowing how hard that, that specific soil is gonna be to change its own pH, we can come up with a lime recommendation specific for that soil and that, that plant. Then we also do a nutrient testing on it. So we'll take the soil again, we'll add a special chemical to knock off some of the, the nutrients on the soil. So we'll add that chemical to the soil, we'll shake it for five minutes, we'll filter all the sediment back out, just getting that, that extract with all the nutrients knocked off in there. We'll read it on a special machine called an ICP. 
and then it'll tell us what nutrients are are in the soil solution. And once we have that, then we can figure out is the soil like low, medium, or high, or very high in specific nutrients, um, or is it sufficient or deficient in, in micronutrients? And using using those numbers along with the you know the crop provider, the plant provider, we can come up with fertilizer recommendations specific to that plant on that particular soil. So the specific recommendations include both what you want that soil to be used for, like what type of plant you want to put in there versus just any type of soil. There's really that matching between soil and plant type. Is that, is that correct? Yeah. So, you know, a lot of what we can focus on is the chemical side of it, right? So one common question is they want to test the soil for us to then tell them what plant to put in there. And maybe for pH, we can do that. But for many other reasons, you know, it's, we can't really do that. Like you know, a particular plant for a particular soil is more of a landscape and environment question. Uh, in addition to the soil pH and nutrients, which is one component, but there are, you know, is it, does that plant want shade or not shade? Does that plant want well-drained you know, well soil or not well-drained soil? I'm trying to think of all the other aspects that, that would go in, but mostly it's like an environmental landscape question about where should that plant go? So we can help, you know, with maybe is the pH right for that plant, but you know, there's many other questions that go into the right, what's the right plant for the right place? And that's good to keep in mind, but yeah. Yeah, just one part of that, how you're gonna plan out your garden and what you wanna put where is understanding the soil. Yeah, That's great. And so I know you've talked a lot about, you know, the impacts of soils on our waterways and understanding that connection. So, you know, you've talked about making sure the soil stays where it is so we don't have sediment pollution. Um, you know, creating turbidity and, and high turbidity in our streams. And then of course, with the, the nutrients as well, you know, if they're, if you don't have your soil tested and you add more fertilizer, that can also cause problems as well. Yeah, the connection between the soils and the waterways are, in particular, the phosphorus in the soil and soil erosion with sediment getting into there. So, you know, and that's why it's important for homeowners to sample their soils. Because one, it's going to save them money, right? Because let's say that, um, well, if you're going to apply fertilizer and you don't know what to apply and you just go, you go buy a bag of something, you, you either may over apply or not apply the right thing. So from that aspect, it can save you money, right? If you were going to go buy hundred pounds of triple 10 fertilizer, but you don't need phosphorus or potassium, then you could have just bought a bag of, you know, nitrogen only fertilizer. And so you would have saved money from that aspect of it, but also by not applying excess phosphorus to your soil. Uh, you would have lowered the amount of phosphorus in the runoff, right? Because even though you're trying to get that water to infiltrate into the soil, eventually it's going to get saturated. You will have a lot of runoff from the soil going down to the stream. And just a little bit of phosphorus will go into that soil runoff, but a little bit over a lot of rain over many years will, will add up. So you're trying to keep that excess phosphorus runoff as low as you can. And so it, it, that, that does uh, help you save money and also will help the any freshwater bodies nearby. Yeah, definitely. And you can look at, you know, I look out my window, I see my lawn, but I see about 25 other lawns as well. So if we're all doing a little bit too much phosphorus, like you said, that becomes a bigger problem over time. And so right now we're in sort of the beginning of spring. Is this a good time to be testing for the soils? Is it too late to be testing? Um, should people still look into this right now? Yeah, so you can, you can test your soils pretty much any time, right? The, uh, you will see some seasonal variability with testing of soils. So if you test in the fall, 
um, try to always test in the fall. And if, or if you test in the spring, try to always test in the spring. That way you can keep that seasonal variability um, as low as possible. Sometimes you'll see seasonal variability with pH or potassium. Um, but that's one thing to keep in mind. But otherwise, uh, you want a soil test to give your, yourself time to plan, right? So usually you would, for a garden, you would soil test in the fall and that way you know, okay, these are my, uh, my soil pH, these are my nutrient levels, and now you have time to plan what fertilizers should I buy. And another important aspect is, is lime. Like if you did need to lime your soil, it just takes a long time for lime to fully react with the soil. So it could take six months to a year for all the lime you apply to react, right? It'll start reacting as soon as you apply it. It's just lime is not very soluble. So it takes a while for all that you've applied to, to react with the soil. So if you know in the fall that, hey, you need to add lime now, then you can go ahead and apply the lime and give yourself a head start by the time spring rolls around. The soil will be more ready as from a pH standpoint for those plants you're going to. That's cool. I feel like a lot of people are going to be sending you photos and soils and yeah, I want to go get a, a trowel now and go dig my six samples in my yard. So, yeah. well, thanks for joining me today. Um, really appreciated learning more about soils and the ways that it's connected to our waterways and just how important it is to really like you said, plan out, do your research in advance, and, and that's the best way to have sort of a successful, successful garden. Awesome. Thank you so much. There is an endless variety of plants we can choose to add to our green spaces. But there are some we want to avoid, and even remove if we find them, invasive plants. Kitty McCracken is the president of the Tennessee Invasive Plant Council, a nonprofit concerned with invasive plants in our state. She also works at Oak Ridge National Laboratory in the Environmental Sciences Division and the Natural Resources Management Team. We had a chance to dive into the issues and solutions to invasive plants. So just to kick things off with the basics, what are invasive plants and why are they an issue? Invasive plants are non-native plants that establish quickly on many different sites and can grow very quickly out competing native plants. And they spread to the point of disrupting native plant communities uh, in nature and uh, disrupt entire ecosystems and can cause economic and environmental harm. They're a problem because they are so disruptive to the ecosystem and uh, not just other plants growing, but wildlife as well. And they do cause economic harm. So there is that effect on uh, forests and uh, even croplands. And you mentioned, you know, the impacts on native plants and then non-natives. And could you just sort of describe the difference between native, non-native, and then sort of that difference between a non-native plant and an invasive plant? Sure. Uh, a native plant uh, is a plant that's indigenous to a given geographic region. In the United States, that means plants that were here before Europeans came and started bringing their own plants. Even across America, native plants are specific to a geographic region. So you might find um, plants growing in Tennessee that you wouldn't find in California, say, or in the plains and vice versa. 
uh, non-native plants or plants that do not naturally grow in an area and have been introduced either accidentally or intentionally by humans. So that's the difference. Invasive plants are sort of, there, there are lots of non-native plants that are not invasive, uh, but invasive plants grow very, very rapidly and, and uh, strongly and do overwhelm the native plant community. Great, yeah, I think that differentiation between, you know, not all non-natives kind of reach that totally invasive status. I think that's really interesting. And so what are some common invasive plant species that we find in Tennessee that people might be familiar with? Probably the most obvious one is kudzu, which is a, a vine uh, originally from Asia. And you can see it, uh, it's, it's called the plant that ate the south. It grows covering whole hillsides and can even grow up trees and, and grow totally over the trees, uh, very, very thickly carpeting and covering any plants underneath. Uh, some other ones would be uh, mimosa trees that you find uh, a lot along the edges of forests, along roadways. Uh, they really, uh, they were brought over as an ornamental. They're, they have really nice pink flowers, but they are out competing red buds and dogwoods. Uh, they are very prolific cedars and uh, you can find them all along, all along roadways and edges of, of natural areas. Uh, privet is a shrub that uh, just about any greenway you're along in Tennessee and, and many other areas too, uh, you'll find privets uh, that were brought over to, to make hedges in people's, people's homesteads and have escaped uh, into, into natural areas and grow just along forest floors, uh, along edges of forests, throughout fields, uh, very thickly uh, outcompeting native plants. Those are some of the, the top ones. Uh, English ivy, you see that in uh, non-yard areas. It's, it's a ground cover, but it also grows up trees to the extent that it really weights down and covers the tree entirely. Um, there, I, can, I could go on and on. Um, bush honeysuckle is another one. There, there are a couple of native honeysuckle shrubs, but a mere bush honeysuckle, uh, again, you can see them with the tons of red berries in the fall. They're spread very much throughout the, um, throughout the forest and along forest edges by birds eating their seeds and then, then depositing the results uh, along those areas. And they, they grow to the point that you can't really get into the forest easily. They thickly cover the forest edges. So if somebody thinks they might have this invasive species in their yard, where can they get more information to get the correct identification? Tennessee Invasive Plant Council's website, tnipc.org, uh, will has a whole page of uh, um, invasive plants that are found throughout Tennessee. And you can, you can go to that section of the website, click on a particular plant, and it will take you to a description of the plant along with pictures. And uh, that way you can really identify what you've got. 
additionally, on the website, we have links to other uh, really good websites that can give you more pictures, uh, really tight descriptions as well. Great, excellent. We'll make sure that that's linked in our show notes so everyone can find that if they think they've got an invasive species. So um, if you find that you have one of these invasive species in your yard, I know we have honeysuckle, kind of like you were saying, along this back old you know, hedgerow that was there before we moved into the house. How can people manage or remove the invasive plants that they find in their yards? Uh, there are a number of ways, both mechanical and chemical, that you can use. Uh, it just depends on the, the degree of, of the problem. If you've got a large yard, you might, might want to go uh, the chemical route and use an herbicide. If you decide to do that, uh, I suggest you do a little bit of research on which ones work the best and uh, follow label instructions to the letter. They will tell you exactly the percentage to use, how to use it, uh, protective clothing for you to wear if you're using a chemical. If you want to use mechanical methods, pulling up or smothering plants, depending on what it is, of course, uh, there are, are tools available, just hand pulling, or there are leverage tools, for example, weed wrenches that can grasp the base of a shrub or a small tree, and you use the lever then, and it will uproot the plant. Smothering some of the ground covers can be done with black plastic, that sort of thing. Um, again, using using herbicides, you don't need to spray the whole leaves, although that's an option too. Um, you can cut a tree down and then immediately treat the stump with just a small, more concentrated bit of herbicide. So there are a lot of different methods for doing this. Uh, but you really have to keep at it because unless you're totally uprooting the plant, there is a danger of, of regrowth. Yeah, certainly. And that tool, a weed wrench, is that something that people can find? Is it common at, at you know, your home goods and home, home and garden stores, or is it something you need to find more specialty? Um, I have always ordered them online. Uh, there are a couple of the different ones are the weed wrench or the uh, puller bear, P-U-L-L-E-R bear, uh, are a couple of the different ones that you can buy online. Um, specialty garden centers may have them. I have not seen them at those places yet, but uh, they come in different sizes as well. Why is it important that people focus on removing the invasive plants in their yard, even if they think, oh, I'm not near the park or it's just one you know, bush? Why should people be focused on removing those invasives they find? A lot of people think that uh, it's fine to have them in their yard, and don't realize that a lot of the uh, transport of the seeds is through wildlife. Birds eat a lot of the berries that come up on the, on the different shrubs or even some of the vines. And uh, wildlife coming through an area can pick up uh, burrs that could stick to their fur and transport them in, into natural areas or uh, agricultural areas. And it uh, really, causing a lot of spread that way. And also, uh, like if you wear a certain pair of hiking shoes or something out into your yard and pick up seed on your shoes or on bicycle tires, then go riding out in, 
out along greenways, you're spreading seeds that way as well. So uh, you may think you're safe having it in your yard, but they're very, very easy to spread with wildlife or even your, your shoes or cars or bicycles. Wow, that's pretty incredible to think about kind of those invisible things that you might not see in the ways that you're you're spreading it everywhere you go. I hadn't even thought about the shoes, moving that, you know, I've thought about the wildlife, but yeah, your shoes that you're wearing could be carrying those invasive plants. Yeah, all it, all it takes is a little bit of mud with a seed in it uh, to be tromped off along a greenway. And there you've got a, a new plant ready to grow. Wow. And so you mentioned earlier and kind of mentioned again, some of the, the impacts of those invasive species. And you mentioned, you know, that seed potentially getting transplanted to an agricultural area. What are some of those impacts that we see, for example, in agricultural areas with invasive species? Invasive species uh, are such rapidly spreading, rapidly growing plants that they can uh, really uh, be disruptive to any plant, plant situation, whether it's in agriculture or particularly in nature. Um, they, they seed very rapidly. Uh, mature quickly, more quickly than than any planted seed or native seed would, and uh, they survive very well under difficult conditions, so they can quickly uh, become a problem. Um, so those are some of the reasons that they quickly become a problem. Uh, they can cause disruption of utility rights away and growing on, on utility lines. I'm sure you've seen kudzu and other vines, uh, overwhelming utility poles. They can have uh, caused road safety problems and uh, absolutely um, contribute to loss of habitat and native food sources for wildlife, that sort of thing as well. Uh, and that can become, uh, particularly for agriculture or um, maintenance can become very, very costly uh, to, the, to the utilities and farmers. So um, having to treat for invasive, invasive plants is, uh, is a high cost uh, just across the board. Yeah, certainly. And thinking about the impacts of invasive species and, and our waterways, I know many invasive species are found in sort of those disturbed areas along our waterways. What are some of the connections or impacts between invasive plants and, and waterways? The waterways serve as a dispersal corridor for seeds. So uh, you'll find a lot of invasive plants growing around stream or riverbanks or even, even around uh, lakes, and they can be transported very easily by water to new areas and spread into, into all sorts of areas along that route. Uh, additionally, the um, plants that grow in what's called the riparian zone or the special plant zone that grows out from a, uh, a river or stream, uh, those are, are very important plants to keep native because for one thing, their root systems of the native plants are much deeper and much better at holding in soils in, and keeping the riverbanks from collapsing and then um, causing siltation and other problems within the waterway, which would impact all the uh, animals and, 
plants that would be uh, grow uh, would be living in the waterway. So it's it's really important, especially along waterways, to ensure that invasive plants don't get in and disrupt that important uh, native plant system. Great. Yeah, it's interesting thinking about waterways being another conduit for the movement of those invasive species and. They move a lot of things, but yeah, moving invasive species as well. So if we think back to, you know, our yards and if we've got a honeysuckle bush that we've now removed, but maybe we're, you know, wanting to replace it with something, are there recommendations for native plants that kind of serve some of those same functions that those more invasive species have? For example, being a really great hedgerow or adding some privacy. Oh, absolutely. Uh, on our website, the tenipsy.org, uh, we have uh, several brochures for the homeowner that you can just download from our site and print out if you want to. Uh, there we have a Tennessee's native plant alternatives to non-native species, which will give you, for example, it'll it'll mention something like a, a mirabeau honeysuckle, and you can look that up, and then it will give specific. Uh, native alternatives that you could plant instead that would serve the same purpose. So if you were trying to grow a hedgerow, you could do that and and find something that's that's a, a beautiful native plant providing flowers. For example, if you needed a, a ground cover, it would give you something to use that would be native instead of, say, English ivy or something. You could, uh, it gives you really specific alternates that you can use. We have that one. We have landscaping with native plants in Tennessee, and we also offer specific region-specific, like East Tennessee, Middle Tennessee, West Tennessee brochures that uh, would give you information on native plants that would, uh, would be good alternatives to the invasive ones. That's great to know because it is, you know, we have a line of honeysuckle at the back of our house and we've been slowly working to remove it, but then you do have this opening where you had maybe some more privacy. So it's great to be able to kind of see that full cycle of identifying it, removing it, managing that, and then replacing it with something native that, you know, is better for our, our Tennessee environment here. I, I think one of the key things in, in uh, controlling invasive plants is that you you kind of have to keep at it. These things are, these plants are uh, invasive because they're very persistent as well. So once you get say a, a, a shrub removed or a tree removed, keep your eyes out because they're gonna be seeds coming back up, which may create the problem all over again. And you can get them when they're tiny and just pull them out. Keeping on the area that you want to control is good season after season. It becomes easier and easier every year as, you, as you're consistent with that. Thank you, Kitty, for joining me today and sharing your insights about invasive species. I feel like we've got a plan for, for tackling these in our yards. Sure, and uh, please visit our website for information on all the invasive species that are a problem in Tennessee and some of the ones that are some of the ones that are becoming problems and not yet really, really known to be. I would say the website is very good. We also have Facebook and Twitter accounts that you can ask us questions directly um, on those and we'll find answers and send them to you. 
So if people have specific questions, we're welcoming that as well. Supporting our waterways and nature can be as simple as gardening in your own backyard. Tyler, Robert, and Kitty have all shared practical and easy to implement tips and tricks for your own space. We hope you find a way to get started or refresh your space and discover the joy in your own green area. For more information and resources mentioned in this episode, check out our show notes or visit our website at cumberlandrivercompact.org slash rivertalks. Thank you.